I'm Brian Bahaley, and you're listening to Level Playing Field. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Level Playing Field. Level Playing Field is my podcast. My name is Randy Boos, where I interview LGBT sports personalities. Before we get to this week's guest, I want to talk a little bit about the U.S. Open. I recorded my interview with Brian on Saturday, and tonight is Monday, the official opening of the U.S. Open, and Serena Williams just killed Sharapova 6-1-6-1, and I'm recording my intro. Leading up to this, the U.S. Open had its first official Pride event entitled Love All, an Open Conversation. The event was hosted by Nick McCarvel, and it had some out athletes, not just from the tennis world, but from basketball, figure skating, and baseball. If you missed the event live on Thursday night, it's still on the Facebook page. I recommend you check it out. It was entertaining. Adam Rapone is one of the guests, and he can make a, a show out of anything, and he was a lot of fun. Talking about this episode, though, with Brian, while I don't talk really about his coming out to his family, we do talk about coming out to the world, basically. Before we get to his coming out, though, to, to the world, we end up talking a lot about tennis. His junior days... Um, playing at University of Virginia, where he also he also graduated with a double major. We talk about his time on the ATP tour. It was cut short with injury issues, leaving him to retire early. Um, he was a lot of fun, though. He is a busy guy. In fact, 20 minutes before we go to talk, he actually announces on his Instagram page that his family of four, his husband, himself, and his two sons, are adding a daughter. And so we start out with congratulations on that. Anyways, without further ado, here's my episode with Brian Bahaley. Brian, thank you for coming on my podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. First of all, let's talk 30 minutes ago on Instagram. You announced you're having a daughter. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've, I've got two twin boys. Uh, I've got four four guys in the house and uh we wanted to take a shot on a fifth kid just to see if there was a shot of it being a little girl and turns out uh we got lucky and we were expecting one in february that is awesome congrats yeah we're excited we've we've had a great time raising the kids and kind of wanted to add to the madness so um this was our one last viable egg we had so we figured we'd roll the dice and it's it has worked out really well nice i like to usually start at the beginning what were you like as a kid? Gosh, uh, I was always a competitive, strong-willed, um, a little bit selfish uh, kid. I, um, you know, I, I loved to compete. I loved to play tennis. I loved to do anything that was sort of had a racket sport feel to it. Um, you know, I was somebody that was an introvert in some capacity where I sort of was fine just doing things on my own. But, you know, I spent a lot of time on the tennis court. And I really loved doing it. And it was sort of something that I knew I was really good at. I loved to do it. And, um, you know, my parents did a really good job sort of facilitating that that growth for me, I guess. So tennis was always your sport? Yeah, I started when I was two. So I don't really remember life without it. And it was always sort of that uh, that that game or that thing that I could do to get away from everything. So you know, whether you're practicing in the mornings, in the afternoons, it was just sort of, it was very early on, it became a part of my identity. And frankly, I was, I was good at it as a young age. So I think at that, 
you know, during those days, you like to do things that get you attention and get you some validation. So, you know, that kind of kept me going. And um, like I said, I don't, I don't really remember life without the tennis racket. How soon when, when you were young, were you starting to get the attention of coaches? Uh, you know, I think in the early days, you know, you just sort of get the attentions of people around a club. You know, it's not that big of a deal. I think when I started to turn nine or ten, I was playing more and more tournaments, 12 and under tournaments, winning them. Um, you know, I was, I, I, you know, I don't really remember there being a big amount of attention that came, but I certainly found that I was working with better and better coaches, getting access to more and more things. And you just, it sort of just grows upon itself. You start doing well at the city level, then it's the state level. And then it sort of continues to move its way up. And it's really not until you make it into nationals, you know, as an 11 or 12 year old that people start to, you know, kind of give you a little bit more than a second glance. So you entered the the junior ranks pretty early though, right? I did. I mean, I was playing things, you know, they have tournaments like sectionals and zonals and challenge cup and, you know, all of these things that sort of give you exposure at a really young age. Really, it wasn't until I was, I believe I was 12 or 13 and started playing nationals. And, you know, back in those days, it was still, you know, it was fun. I mean, I didn't really have much of an expectation. You really don't see yourself as a national contender. And so, you know, I did find some success. I believe I was ranked around 60 or 70 in the country when I was a 12 year old in the 14s and, you know, got my way up to 10 or 11. And, you know, over time started to get more and more comfortable at the national, you know, at the national tournaments and the seating started to get higher and the pressure starts to build. And that's sort of where it went from a, a fun hobby to re- recognizing this was, this was the real deal and this was going to be a job. And that, that has a, a way of changing things for you sometimes. Did it change the way you looked at the game? Uh, it certainly changed the way I experienced it. I mean, I think the challenge for many people, you know, getting to the top of a sport is one thing. Uh, defending that turf is another because you have to deal with pressure. You have to deal with expectations. And frankly, after a while, you know, when you get to be 14, 15 years old, you start to realize college scholarships are on the line and there's a financial component to that. And that is um, at times more pressure than a 14 or 15 year old, you know, is used to feeling or wants to feel. So there were times when I thought about walking away. There were times when I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. And and it quickly became a job. But, you know, and also in conversations with my parents, you know, as much of you sort of have a perspective shift, you can either see it as a job or see it as an incredible opportunity to get into some of the top schools in the country. And I tried to do my best to think about the sport and think about the game the right way and sort of take it in smaller doses. So not necessarily thinking too far down the road, you know, past college or anything like that. Let's just compete, get the highest ranking we can and then, you know, get as many options as 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 possible when it came to, you know, making decision to go to college. When you were playing the game at that young age, who were the the players that you really looked up to on the, the pro tour? I'd say probably Michael Chang was a big one for me. He's probably, he was probably my number one role model. Um, you know, my, my folks were really big and uh, tough on me as it related to sportsmanship and maintaining my cool. And I always thought he did a really nice job of being composed. Uh, I grew up Catholic. My, you know, I, I found his religious background to be compelling as well. So he was probably the biggest role model. With that said, I mean, you've got guys like Agassi playing, um, who's always garners a lot of attention and was, uh, you know, you know, Agassi, Sampras, Courier. I mean, it was sort of that next crop of Americans that were always, you know, you always had your eye on. But I'd say Chang was probably the most, um, you know, the, the the photo I have with him at a very early age, I guess. Oh, really? So you met him? I did. He played a tournament in the AT&T Challenge in Atlanta, which actually happened, 
you, know, you think about all these different moments that inspire you to sort of become great. Uh, a couple of things stuck, stick out. The AT&T Challenge, which was in my home country club, um, where I got the opportunity to see professional tennis up close. And then um, the NCAAs were in Athens, Georgia. And I went there with my family and saw that at a young age. And th that just those kind of aspirational moments, you know, motivated me to want to have moments like that someday. So we got the opportunity to meet the Changs. Um, actually, the year that he won the French Open, his mom sent us a postcard um, thanking us for, you know, I don't know, my mom had developed a really, my mom was a volunteer of the tournament, had developed a relationship with her. And so the year that he won it um, was corresponding with his mother, which was kind of cool. And <laughs> again, there's just sort of, sort of things that made me feel connected to him, which made me feel more connected to the sport, which made me want to play the sport more and, you know, inspired me to keep wanting to, to compete and to play. Obviously, this is a uh, a podcast about sexuality. You didn't come out to the world, I guess, in a way, um, until after you stopped playing. But when did you start to to notice that things were different for you? Was it still you know, in those teen years? A little bit. I mean, you know, I was an introvert by nature. And so I didn't, you know, I think sport for me was a very good hiding place, uh, unbeknownst to myself. And, you know, so much about what made me successful in tennis was my ability to um, manage my feelings. So if you're getting too hyped, if you're getting too angry, if you're getting too frustrated, if you're getting too anything, how do you sort of convert that into something positive uh, in order so that you can compete and play the next point? So for me, I just had developed the skill of ignoring my feelings. And so it's, it's not necessarily that it wasn't there in the teenage years. I just really wasn't paying attention to it. And if, as I think back, I just was sort of, you know, I had girlfriends very sort of intermittently. Um, I, a lot of the guy friends I had were attractive guy friends. Didn't really, I wasn't necessarily sexualizing it at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I just, that's kind of just the way that it was, whether it was from my high school days or, uh, you know, going to, a, to the University of Virginia, joining a fraternity. You know, I just, I kind of had my focus on tennis and there were these sort of things happening around me, but I wasn't, I think there was probably a self-protection part of me that didn't want to dig any, a step further. That's interesting. So you really use the sport to hide it from others and from yourself in a way. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, were there moments where I probably, where it showed itself to me? Absolutely. I just, you know, those things are sort of not helpful and, and, and frankly, it was, it was a learning process, you know, I mean, it just wasn't, it wasn't something that I felt right away and it kind of grew on, you know, onto itself. And, um, you know, I, it's, it's a, it's a massively long story over seven, eight, nine years. Yeah. Um, but not something that I was really aware of. And I felt like I was consciously aggressively hiding the way a lot of other people sort of tell that story. Yeah, that makes sense. So while you're focused on tennis in your teen years, and you're having success on the junior circuit, what makes you want to go to a four-year college and do NCAA route? So I was playing in the juniors. I got up to about, uh, I was one in the country for a while. I was 17 in the world. Um, I think everybody in the top 50 in the world went to, went to play professional tennis. You know, my family was very, education was just really important. And I think our perspective was, listen, there are plenty of people that I've lost to in juniors. There's plenty of people that I've lost to um, playing above me that didn't make it on the pro tour. And it just seems like a poor decision to miss out an opportunity on a great education, given that the odds of success are just so low. And frankly, um, you know, I just, 
I'm not necessarily sure if I was emotionally mature enough to go out there. There are a lot of players who had a lot bigger serves or a lot bigger forehands and a lot larger support staff that could where it maybe made sense. But for me, I just wasn't there and I knew it um, and I wanted to go to college. And frankly, I still wasn't sure if my aspirations were to be a professional or not, um, because, you know, I didn't have a lot of people believing in me at that time. Um, and so I, I wasn't I just didn't have the confidence really to push that forward. So college was a great I mean, I loved college. First of all, University know, Virginia was one of the greatest decisions I ever made. But uh, yeah, I just needed I needed some time. I needed to mature a little bit. So then once you do choose Virginia as your school, what's that first year like? You know, it was, frankly, it was filled with a lot of drinking. Um, <laughs> I partied way too much. I probably gained 35 pounds of just beer gut weight. Um, you know, again, I just didn't know how to survive without my family there. My, you know, my sort of support system. I kind of just went a little bit wild. I never really had that kind of freedom. So, you know, I was a little injured. I partied a lot. It was fun. Um, I, I went to Virginia with some great guys who I'm still close with who were in my, uh, recruiting year. Um, you know, and it just took me a little while to settle in. Uh, I was still very intimidated of a lot of the players who were older than me you know, three or four years older, um, you know, was still losing those matches from time to time and, uh, you know, kind of didn't really know where I fit in it, but I just wanted that social maturity um, as much as, you know, the feeling of what it's like to be on a team. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things that I, I think is so great about college tennis. The team aspect of it? Yeah. I mean, just have people who you actually can genuinely feel are rooting for you, right? There's always that feeling growing up in the juniors. It's, you know, is this person rooting for me or do they actually want me to lose because it's an easier draw for them or, you know, sort of that just competitive piece of, you know, wanting to be better than other people. And there's times when people root against each other and I get it. I, I did it. Um, so to actually actually genuinely feel what it's like to have somebody's outcome, you know, where, where my winning is their winning um, is just something that, you know, you only feel and in, in really in college tennis. Is it different, though, because, you know, you're obviously competing for that number one spot on your team, right? You are. And, and some of the early days can be competitive. So it's not so much that you're not competing as teammates. The difference is when you're finally on court and you're finally competing and you're in the ACCs or you're in the NCAAs or you're, you know, it's a big match as a team. It, you're just not you're not competing for spots at that point. That decision's already been made. So there really wasn't. I just never felt that from my team um, where every, where once we got to game day, everybody was very, very supportive. Mm -hmm. Now in the fall, as you're prepping and trying to get better and maybe moving from three to four or two to one, sure, those moments can definitely exist. And, and I think some of that's healthy. You've got to push your, you know, push each other to get better and sort of defend your turf. Was it your freshman year that you were rookie of the year in the ACC? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I had some good, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say, what was that like for you to win that award? I mean, is that one like your highest maybe in your your tennis career? Um, I, you know, I didn't even know that I was playing for it, right? I mean, I sort of started, I think my first match I was playing four. By the end of the season, I was playing number one, um, which was really exciting and sort of confusing to be in a leadership position at that young. Um, I was uh, excited for that award when I got it. Um, but... I, you know, I, I don't know, sometimes with awards, it's just, it's kind of an odd feeling. I mean, I felt, I worked hard that year. Um, I worked hard that first year. I, I think I, I thought my results were really strong and I felt like I um, put myself a lot of, you know, above a lot of people in my class and the other school in the other schools. So 
I don't know. I kind of felt like it was a, a great pat on the back for what was a really hard work first year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, talk about awards. It seems like you had a great career at Virginia. I mean, you had the Rookie of the Year award. You had ACC Player of the Year twice, it looks like. Virginia's Mill Athlete of the Year. Yeah, I mean, it was great. I mean, I had a, I had a great – and back in this day, the ACC tennis wasn't really that strong. So I was fortunate to break a lot of barriers, you know, make the, the finals of, of tournaments um, that no ACC player ever had in the past. So I love that feeling. I love the feeling of doing something that hasn't been done before and going a, a sort of unusual path to get there. So I was encouraged by all of those pieces. I, I had some great success in the ACC. I felt um, a sense of pride for what I was able to accomplish there. So – um, I think what sticks out a little bit more in my mind when, you know, I went to the UVA banquet and they had me as the male athlete of the year across all sports. Which is um, crazy that, was, that a tennis player would win that award. Yeah, I mean, no tennis player had ever won it, right? So even just sitting in the crowd and, and them acknowledging me in that way was probably the most maybe surprised I was, <laughs> you know, out of some of the other ones where I, you know, the awards that I did win, um, you know, you just sort of feel like, hey, I put the work in, I did it, I accomplished this, I'm ranked this. Like you sort of feel like it's the trophy that you earned as opposed to something like that, where your peers are saying, no, out of all of these other athletes and all these other sports that make it very difficult to compare, we vote you as the best athlete in that group. And that was, that was a very humbling award, uh, in the you know, during that time. So when you go to the award ceremony, are you not expecting that at all then? No, no. I mean, you're oh, not told wow. any of it, right? So it's, I think it was, there was a ACC Scholar Athlete of the Year, which I was super proud of um, just for the academic side, because to be an academic All-American was something that really was important to me and also to my family. So that was something from on the academic side. I wasn't sure where I stood. I was really happy there. And then when that sort of part came in was a yeah, it was certainly a huge surprise. Yeah, because while you're doing all of this tennis with the team, you're also doing a double major in finance and business, right? Yeah, I mean, which was hard. Um, I had to make a lot of sacrifices along the way. I had to stay up late nights. I had to pull some all-nighters at times. I mean, it was, you know, frankly, it's one of the things I loved about University of Virginia. You've got a lot of people who work hard, play hard, party hard, do everything, just super intense. And I had to really focus on my time management at that point. So, yeah, I was really proud of my grades. I was really happy with the accolades I took. I was, I was happy with, um, you know, it was not an easy road especially being in the undergraduate business school, which is the number one undergrad business school in the country. So it was, it was hard. <laughs> I, I could imagine. Actually, I couldn't imagine. I take that back. It, it was hard. Um, and I had to be very, very thoughtful with my time. I bet you did. So when you graduate from University of Virginia, you have these double majors. Was it a hard decision to go pro and, and try the ATP tour? So I did a, I sort of did a couple things at the same time. I did some interviews for consulting and investment banking. That was kind of the traditional path you took after Virginia, after the business school. Um, so I took some interviews there. That was going well. They really, you know, were drawn to pulling in athletes. Um, so I was excited about the opportunities there. And with tennis, you know, the, the big concern I have, frankly, was the, the financial risk that it was to fly all over the country, you know, and fly, excuse me, fly all over the world competing and wondering if it's just going to be one big money and time suck. Um, fortunately, a lot of people at the time said, hey, listen, it's worth it to have that on your resume, right? So give it a shot. Well, then problem number two is I don't have the money to do it. <laughs> My family yeah. didn't have the money to finance that. So I had to put together a whole marketing deck, 
you know, I started pitching investors to say, hey, listen, you know, if you can give me X amount of dollars per month, I will promise you Y amount of my prize money. And was, is that a gamble that you're willing to take? And inevitably, I was um, fortunate to um, meet someone through a University of Virginia alumni uh, through the network and found someone who was willing to take that risk. Um, and it was awesome. It, it paid off extremely well, obviously, for me and for him. But, uh, you know, at that time, you know, there were no college graduates in the top 100 in the world. So and there were plenty of people that I lost to in college that were not successful in the pro tour. So, you know, it was a huge risk for that guy to give me this opportunity. I, w- I will forever be grateful for that. And frankly, I, I knew I was staring uphill, you know, on what was going to be a really difficult task. And it certainly didn't help, you know, two months into my pro career, I got a wild card into the qualifying of the U.S. Open and I lost 6-0, 6-0 in about 30 minutes. <laughs> so, you know, there were some humbling moments in the early days that made me realize, you know, a great college player does not make a great pro player. Uh, and I had to do some really... Um, some soul searching and some hard work to finally understand um, how I needed to train differently and frankly needed to show up and compete differently. I bet going back to the investor thing, is that the normal route that, no. you know, Oh, no, it's not. I, I don't know many people that did it. I mean, most people, um, you know, frankly, tennis has become such an expensive sport in some ways that, um, you know, most people have families that can help, you know, afford help them afford to do it. So I just, unfortunately my family could not. So I think mine was probably the most creative way to <laughs> to at least give myself a shot. Yeah, because I couldn't imagine flying all over, competing in tournaments, not knowing if you're going to get any prize money out of it. And if yeah, you don't, I mean, it's, it's a losing a losing correct. trip. Well, and listen, even if you win the tournament, right? In those early days, those first tournaments where you're ranked 1,500 in the world, you know, if you win the tournament, I think it was like $1,500, right? So subtract out hotel, <laughs> meals, and travel. And you're lucky if you only lose a little bit. <laughs> so you're burning through cash consistently. And that's assuming you're winning the tournaments, which you're not. Right. There's a lot of really strong collegiate players, young international players who are out there. So you have to be prepared to lose a significant amount of money that first year in order to do it. And, you know, a lot of people can't afford to do it. Um, I think for myself, I also because I had an investor that helped me mentally do it and not feel like I was putting pressure on my family. And then in the back of my mind, I thought, listen, if this doesn't work at the very least, I can sort of talk about my pro tennis aspirations or, you know, playing or the world travel um, that I think would still read, you know, fairly well on my resume once I moved to the next step. Yeah. Cause I mean, I was thinking before we started talking and in game sponsors, you know, help maybe with equipment, clothes, rackets, mm-hmm. that stuff. But to get a sponsor outside of the sport where the money would come in, that must be hard when you're just starting out. Yeah. I mean, it's you really, it's not until you're ranked in the 200s or so that, you know, even some of those Adidas or, and actually probably it's even higher than that. I don't think I got a lot of my sponsorships until I was in the top 100 in the world. Um, you know, which at that point, yes, I, you know, I love the sponsorship money, but you don't need it as much. <laughs> Right. You know, you're making money from prize money and all these other different venues. So the money in the sport really does sit at the top ATP level. And the biggest challenge is getting there, you know, because it's a long climb from 1500 to 100. Let me ask you something. If it's basically you have to to make it so you are news and you separate yourself from the pack if you're not in the top, you know, 50 or whatever coming out. Let's say now, let's say not even back then, because back then it was a different time, even though it was only 15 years ago or so. 
let's say coming out now though, does that help you? Do you think get sponsors? Uh, I think it could. I mean, I think the Gus Kentworthy and, you know, Adam Rapone story over these last four years makes you believe that there are plenty of businesses out there that want to align with the LGBTQ, you know, community, love the over idea of the overlap in sports and are willing to pay money to do it. And so that financially feels like there can be an opportunity there. But again, you know, it's not just about, you know, the a lot of the heart. What we have not seen oftentimes is a player in the early days of their sport coming out and living that entire experience as an out professional throughout their career. Mm-hmm. Right. You've seen a different guy. There was a Patriots lineman who came out, you know, sort of at the tail end of his career. Jason Collins at the tail end. Um, you know, Robbie Rogers actually did it and continued to compete for a while. But I think it is, you know, I, it, the challenge is still the same, which is you've got locker rooms, you've got other players. Um, you've got potential fear of judgment as you're playing in different countries or different cities where, right. you know, it's not as accepted. I mean, there's a lot of dynamics you bring in. And I think when you're out there trying to compete with the world's best, you know, it takes a certain kind of personality who really wants to be an advocate during that time when you know that your window is so limited. So let's talk about your career, your pro career. What was it like that first year? Uh, first year was tough. Um, you know, you took a lot of took a lot of beatings. Um, you know, my first in and around the first six months, I actually kind of made a decision that I did not think I was good enough. Um, talked to my best friend at the time about moving to Australia. What if we sort of, you know, took a year down there, do a year abroad before we take life seriously, you know, started to do some of that planning and and talk to my family about, you know, Hey, listen, fun ride, but I'm not interested in playing weekend and week out and losing all the time. I had never lost that much. You know, my typical career in college was a, you know, 40 win and five loss season. And now all of a sudden I've played nine matches and I've lost eight of them. And wow. I, I wasn't really sure how to handle Big that. Difference. So, yeah, it's huge. And you just, you lose every week. And I'm used to losing once every two months. So it, it that was a little bit of a shift. And, um, you know, and, and the more I lost, the more, you know, frustrated I got and the worse I played. And it was kind of going down a downhill spiral. And so once I started to kind of quit a little bit in my mind, you sort of go through this. I don't want to say it's like this morning slash death experience but you used i all of a sudden began to step on the court with an odd sense of perspective so i was thinking about what it was like to play as a junior what it was like to play as a four-year-old as a five-year-old and i stopped being so hard and critical of myself and just tried to know that this chapter was coming to an end and i wanted to sort of love the experience on the way out and be thankful for it and it really took me into a very i got out of my head i got out of myself and just um, wanted to play the best I could and and lose feeling honorable in that way. And for whatever reason, that mental perspective that I took, I just started playing lights out. And I won, you know, I played a Futures, I won it. Played the next one, I won it. Played the next one, I got to the finals. Came to the um, uh, States to play Challengers. I beat a guy, Chris Woodruff, you know, who was ranked top 30 or 40 in the world. Um, you know, played another challenger and, and drew Michael Chang, um, who obviously that was a big moment for me and beat him. And it what just, was that like beating your hero growing up and then to beat him in your career? Yeah, it was, it was, uh, emotional and odd all at the same time, you know, hard to concentrate, exciting while you're doing it, 
nerve wracking while it's happening, scary at the thought of winning and even better to feel what it's like and feel sort of the goosebumps in your mind and in your and in your in your heart when you go to shake his hand and he tells you good match because you beat him. Does, um, did he remember you as a kid? He did not know. And, and he wouldn't. I mean, I was because yeah, it was your was mom that talked. Seven. Yeah, it was just I was six or seven at the time. So I was super young. But uh, yeah, it just it started to build really, really quickly. And I was very much preserving my sort of mental health. And I don't know, just this sort of this newfound. Uh, uh, I started to tap into a new part of my mind that allowed me to play at a level that helped me to compete uh, professionally. And that, um, you know, for me allowed for, you know, a great run for a while there. <laughs> what was your first Grand Slam tournament? Uh, first was probably the U.S. Open. Um, as I started to climb the rankings, the USDA gave me a wild card uh, played out on Arthur Ashe uh, Stadium against James Blake, who actually I grew up with. I mean, I had known him since I was 10 years old. So it was kind of an interesting first time experience. But um, it was a great four set match. I lost in a four set tiebreaker. Um, and, you know, there was a huge learning curve there to see what it, I mean. The, the interesting thing about playing on Ash, you know, as you toss the ball, as you're playing, you can actually see yourself playing on the Jumbotron at the top of the stadium. Oh, yeah. So I was just like struggling, wanting to hit a good shot and then watch myself hit it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so ridiculous. But those are the sort of the intangibles that you forget that they, you know, the more seasoned pros know how to block out. And for me, I just was amazed that I was playing in the largest stadium in the world that people were actually paying to watch me play. And, you know, you sort of don't really know how good you are. You know how good the guys on TV are, but you don't necessarily know how what you look like on TV. So it was a it just was a weird, weird match, weird moment, but really fun to kind of get in the Grand Slam world. What was the atmosphere like to have two Americans do a four-set match at the U.S. Open? It was great. I mean, it was, you know, a lot of yelling from the crowd. I mean, the New York crowd is fun. Yeah. Right? I, I got to play a lot of matches there, and they get into it, and they're intense, and they, <laughs> they offer feedback if you're not playing well. <laughs> um, but I loved every second of it, and it was a really – I mean, that's the hard part sometimes is to not allow yourself to be a spectator in the moment. And that was always really hard for me as I got to the Grand Slams was, you know, I just was so in awe of what I was experiencing that I would, couldn't compete the same way that I did in some of the other tournaments where I maybe didn't have the same perspective. It's just, you know, you walk out onto those courts in New York and they're yelling and I, and I kind of made me smile. And, you know, you go out to Wimbledon and you start to play on some of the <laughs> center courts and it's like, this is amazing. Like, I just love that I'm out here and that's not the right attitude if you want to win. <laughs> yeah. And so it's really, you know, it's sort of why they, um, you know, I'm always continually so impressed with these folks who can go out there their first time and just put all of it aside. Um, I think I probably watched too much tennis or was just too, uh, too caught up in the spectacle of it. Was the U S open your favorite grand slam growing up or did you have a favorite? I uh, didn't necessarily have a favorite. I would say the one that sort of emotionally struck me the most was Wimbledon. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's something about the grass and there is a, um, the, know, the grass, like the, the tradition, and and... the tradition is just so strong. Yeah. Um, uh, so for me, that was really awesome to kind of walk those grounds and feel what that was like. Um, whereas, uh, I mean, listen, New York, what's great about New York is the fans is it's just this over-the-top atmosphere, which is incredible. And frankly, you've got friends that are nearby. 
So it's a great feeling to look up in the stands when you're competing and see guys you went to college with and, you know, friends be out there supporting you, which, you know, for the, the one thing about the professional tennis circuit, you know, you're traveling 40 weeks a year and it can be very lonely. Um, you know, you have these amazing moments, you have these terrible moments, and ultimately you're experiencing them all by yourself. So even now, as I talk about my professional days and my great wins and wins over top 10 players, you know, I really only have that in my mind. Nobody else really can sort of share that with me, certainly fans that are there. But, you know, as I think about friends and family, you know, so much of that experience um, as I sit today is just kind of glory day moments I look back on. So you really don't develop friendships during the tour because you're all in your own camps and... I think some of that's evolving. I certainly became close. Andy Roddick was a really good friend of mine. A lot of the Americans, Ravi Janepri, who I grew up playing with, um, you know, they were all friends, but it's, you know, you are competing against each other and yeah. you are also coworkers. And so at the time, you know, listen, you're in your early twenties, it can be a little bit confusing that line between friendship and not. And um, I think looking back, they were, you know, they were coworkers and you went through a pretty wild ride together. Um, but that's different than true, um, authentic or more intimate friendships. Um, you know, it, it, there's, there's just a line of that that can be a little bit different. Speaking of Andy Roddick, obviously you guys played against each other a few times, but then also how did the partnership happen where you guys, um, ended up competing in doubles? Yeah. So we, um, comp we played against each other in LA early on, uh, in our career and, uh, we had a similar agent. And uh, we had a really good match and the agent said, listen, you guys should get together and, and play. So we I went down to his place in Boca. Uh, we hung out for three or four days and practiced uh, before the U.S. Open. And we just really hit it off um, as friends. And so we slowly, you know, hung out together, went to, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinners, you know, traveled a little bit. It was, um, you know, I would train at his place fairly consistently. So once the friendship got built. You know, there would just be different moments where we were in Europe or in D.C. or, I don't know, different spots. And it was just like, hey, let's looking to get a little extra matches. You want to go out there and play, you know, understanding that singles was always going to be the priority. So if we had to pull out, which I think happened a few times, you know, then then that's what would happen. But, you know, it was just a fun, fun way to make some extra money and, uh, you know, just get out there and play a little bit. How much of a different mentality is it going from singles to doubles? Uh, totally. I mean, and listen, I think some of that's changed because the prize money has increased, but back when I was playing, the prize money really wasn't that high. So it didn't necessarily feel like there was a lot on the line and the focus really was getting some reps in. So understanding the speed of the court, the speed of the ball, um, you know, practicing your returns a little bit, get some, you know, a couple looks at your serve under pressure. You know, it was very relaxed. I mean, Andy and I beat the Bryan twins, the number one team at the time. And yeah, I was going to ask about that. You know, it was a huge win. We're really excited. We were pumped at the end, but it's not for us. We weren't that nervous, right? We got to step back, swing, hit freely. And, you know, if we lose, who cares? Or the number one team, you know, for the Bryans, they were probably a lot more you know, anxious about the match. So um, it's just different, you know, so certain people are playing doubles for different reasons. Um, and so, you know, I was able to beat the Bryans a couple times, and a lot of that was just, you know, my lack of concern with the outcome and just trying to focus on, you know, playing as well as I could, which frankly is a, is a good lesson for me in the singles court. 
Yeah, I can oftentimes see you get way too wrapped up in the outcome, right? And that's the biggest thing you sort of tell some of these players is focus on the journey, focus on each individual point. The second you start pulling your head up and thinking about winning and losing and the pressure associated with both, that's when um, that's when you tend to feel the nerves and pressure and, and the quality of your play starts to go down. Was there a time when you were playing that you ever thought about coming out or just that was that just something that you kept in the so well so i had a girlfriend yeah i had a girlfriend the first couple of years um she uh broke up with me and i was single from that point on and that's when those th- thoughts started to creep in a little bit more and uh it creeped in more and more towards the last year and a half two years of my career and uh it was tough i mean there was a lot of feelings i sort of had when i was out there and uh, thoughts that i just wasn't used to having and i had no one really no one to talk about it with so uh it was you know and these are days pre cell phone i mean yeah there was the internet you know but it just was it 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 was a very confusing time um and certainly what was happening in the larger environment culturally i think that was around the time like the ellen thing there just seemed like there was a lot of things happening that were reminding you that coming out is not a good decision Mm -hmm. This is definitely not a life you want to live. And frankly, as I started to explore it a little bit more, and I think a couple of times when I was on tour, I went to some gay bars and I looked around. And I was like, I don't see myself here. Like, I don't, I don't, I, I, there was a culture and a world that I just, again, for me growing up in sports or growing up at UVA, you know, stepping into that world and, and pride and um, all of these different types of personalities I had no exposure to in the past. It just, frankly, it made me uncomfortable and I didn't get it. And I just, it was reinforcing to me like, oh, I'm actually not this. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the drawing board and figure out what's really going on. And it kind of, uh, you know, again, I was, I was a little bit of a naive, um, sheltered kid <laughs> you know, for, <laughs> for a, a large period based on the fact that I was very focused on, on competing, you know, tennis at a high level. Was the locker room, did the locker room situation ever keep you hidden as well or I mean, what is the locker room situation like? I mean, you're playing one on one, so it's not like it's a large gathering. Yeah, it's there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of players in there. I mean, all the players are for the most part in the same locker room, so everybody's moving around. You know, it's the it's sort of what you'd expect. You got the massage tables over there. You've got the showers. You've got the lockers, and um, you know, I think there again there was a part of my subconscious that knew because as the homophobic language was there and it was always there, um, I think there was this part of me that was afraid that I never wanted anyone to ask too many questions to me, or was there something about me that they were going to find out? I just remember the anxiety that came with it. And part of me at times wondered, maybe I'm just an anxious person. Um, but the reality was I was anxious about somebody kind of digging in a little bit too far into who I am as a person. Um, and so I just, I think with, with each time that I heard it, there was probably a part of me that, that, shoved it further and further down uh so i never had to you know to deal with it but it was it was prevalent for sure i mean that's just part of the the i guess you call it the locker room chat Mm -hmm. so let me ask you this towards the end of your your playing career um i think it's towards the end you were voted one of the 25 hottest bachelors in people magazine yes (laughs) do you get crap for that on the tour or I did pretty consistently. And, and to be honest, I didn't really know. I mean, I knew what the People magazine and all that stuff was. I just didn't really read it or wasn't a part of it. So, you know, I did the interview. I kind of kept it moving. 
And then all of a sudden, I mean, I remember the day it came out, I was at Wimbledon and it just was like, there were hundreds of the magazines all over the locker room. People were just laughing, teasing me, <laughs> making fun of me. I mean, it was just full on onslaught right off the bat. And what was even more tricky was, you know, every tournament that I went to and they would announce you over the loudspeakers, you go onto the court, they would reference that, that article. Are you serious? So all of a sudden it was just this like thing that I couldn't get rid of. Um, and all of a sudden I'm going into, to, you know, interviews after the match and it's like, do you have a girlfriend yet? What's going on? And, you know, it just, it, it sort of highlighted that piece of it for me, which. Yeah. The one thing you you're know, trying to hide you? is. Are you going on tons of dates? And I'm like, no, I'm not going on. And they're like, well, why aren't you? And it's like, I don't know. I'm not, it's not at the top of my mind. It doesn't really, you know, wasn't exciting to me anyway. It just was another, uh fun kind of piece of the puzzle but yeah i try and keep that quiet these days my coworkers inevitably always find out about it now and make fun of me to this day so whatever towards the end of your career you actually started developing injuries was it really the last year or so that you did it or was it something that all your career you had injuries you were i think i was always fighting it i had a lot of cortisone shots um i had a lot of you know physical therapy you know you're just always trying to grind and make it to the next week into the next week and it really wasn't until the last seven or eight months, maybe a year that I just, I lost, my arm kind of went dead. Uh, I would serve, I could serve it at, you know, 125, 130. And then as the match progressed, I could only get up to about a hundred miles an hour. And it just was this weird, you know, I had a couple different tears in my rotator cuff and it, you know, I could play for 45 minutes, but then I would, I would crash. <laughs> um, and it was really frustrating. And I tried a lot of different things because, uh, you know, at that point in time, you know, if you're in your, late twenties, you're towards the end of your career. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you sort of felt like the second you have surgery is the second you have to say goodbye. Um, and that's, I think probably one of the more frustrating parts of, you know, there, there's not many, but a frustrating part of life to date is just seeing so many of my peers playing nine, 10 years after that. And I just, um, I sort of listened to people at the time and it was like, Hey, by the time you take a year off, you know, get things going, pull up your ranking again, you're just going to be too late. It's time to stop. And so, you know, it was frustrating for many years. I actually didn't watch tennis for about six years because I didn't, it, it, it irritated me to see guys that I had beaten out there playing at the, you know, the third or fourth round of Wimbledon. Yeah. But was there a peace of mind when you do retire at all, or is it still that regret of what could have been? Uh, the retirement is a tricky thing, right? So, you mourn, and, and retirement you, in sports is weird because, like you said, you retired when you were still late 20s, right? Right. So, so you're not old at all. You're not old. You're not really retired. But you have to more mourn the loss, right? You mourn the loss of this identity that you had. You mourn the – it's just everything is – everything sort of turns off so quickly. You know, you sort of go from this everybody being wanting to be your friend, wanting to know you. You've got drivers at these tournaments. You've got all of this sort of privilege. And then all of a sudden one day it turns off and you're done. And not only does that feel weird and you don't know what to do with all of your time, but I think the bigger challenge is you don't realize what an adrenaline junkie you have become over this period. So mm -hmm. what it's like to play in front of all of those people with all of that pressure is so exciting. And the reality is there is nothing in the world once your career ends that comes even close to it. And it's why oftentimes you'll see a lot of athletes, in my opinion, don't know this to be true, but go to go bankrupt um, or to get involved in drugs because you're chasing that high that just isn't available to you anymore. And that's really difficult. And so the morning of 
the loss uh, was really, it's just really, really difficult. And I almost had to treat it where I couldn't even talk about it for six or seven years. It, it felt like the death of a family member. There was just this living, breathing part of my life that now was gone and I couldn't have it back and it was never going to come back. And uh, I think a lot of athletes are ill-prepared to sort of handle when that happens because nobody hits the professional level without basically sacrificing their life to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it was super tricky and tough all while, you know, my sexuality at that point is exploding and I'm having all this free time and all these opportunities to explore it a little more. And, you know, that was its own sort of long and windy road. And then, so you retire, you become a venture capitalist, you're obviously using your degrees. Um, and you said it took you six or seven years to come back to the game and, and be able to watch it. Yeah. I mean, it really wasn't until a guy, Paul Goldstein, um, who I, competed with and um uh had reached out to me said hey listen you know would you ever consider coming back we've seen your business success would you think about joining the board of directors for the usda um you know it was sort of a long decision for me to think about whether to do it um but at the same time i thought this was sort of the right thing to do whether i wanted to or not i had an obligation to start to give back to um the organization and frankly a sport that had done so much for me there was so much that I was able to accomplish in the business world that I never could have or would have done without tennis as my sort of foundation. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, for me, it just felt like the right thing to do was sort of a responsibility. And that got me back in the game, which was, you know, frankly, when that happened, you know, I was coming to more terms with my sexuality and that oddly enough, continued that those feelings of anxiety again, they all of a sudden, popped back up because I'm back in this hyper conservative sport where there's no acceptance. There's nobody out. There's nobody talking about it. It's super uncomfortable. It's a guy, you know, it's a very bro culture and you know, here, here I come. Um, it's interesting. It was, uh, it was very, but all that anxiety that was there early on when I was competing, all of a sudden came rushing back, even though I was becoming more and more comfortable in my personal life. It's interesting to me because you talk about it being like a bro sport, but I grew up playing tennis. I never thought it was like a hyper-masculine sport, though, like, you know, wrestling, football, rugby. Sure. Um, it was just one of those middle-of-the-road sports that you could play. And honestly, you you in high school, tennis was considered a gay sport in a way for where I grew up. Yeah. Um, so funny, for uh, you to say that, it's weird. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it depends sort of at the different levels, right? Like tennis at the early, especially in America, um, you know, tennis is sort of sport six or seven on the list. Right. And sort of you wonder about the guys who are playing it as it starts to elevate, as you're playing collegiately, as you're playing professionally. Um, you know, it's just like any other sport up there. <laughs> and so there is a culture in the locker room. There is a culture amongst your team. Um, it's a, you know, if you get to that level of, comp- you know, competition and competitiveness, there's just there's uh, there's a hyper masculinity that comes to getting to that level. And so even, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you play tennis, you must be very smart. You must be, you know, very uh, conservative and sort of polite and all those things. And it's like, listen, you know, a lot of people who made it at the professional game, you know, left school at sixth or seventh grade. (laughs) So, you know, there's mixed degrees of education. I was the only Mm -hmm. college graduate in the top hundred in the world for a period. You know, it's sometimes not always the most educated. And yeah, it's a, you know, a lot of guys cheating on their wives and, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a wild environment up at the, you know, 
anytime you're talking about professional sports, you're talking about a pretty hyper-masculine culture. Yeah, it's something I never even thought about until just now when you said it, because um, you are talking about the top, the top of the top. Yeah, and, and people and... like that are very competitive, and there's just a, a a masculine energy that comes with people who are that competitive. What about four years ago? You come out, or you come out after you're married, right? So I, yeah, it was after I, well, I mean, that's when I did it publicly, right? So there was a, there was right. a process of talking through your family and then it's your closest friends. And I kind of stopped there. And so then there was a period of, as I was advancing in my career, you know, I, people that didn't know me didn't know. And I was okay with that. I really only cared about the people that were personally in my life, you know, knowing certain things about myself and it was fine. And frankly, it was easier because a lot of the, um, you know, the career choices I made were in, you know, heavily male dominated, uh, straight cultures. So it was sort of easier to kind of keep a lot of that private, got married. That sort of took it a step a little bit further where, you know, people then are like, Oh, you're, who's your wife and how's that Mm -hmm. going? And you sort of, how do you handle that? And do you, do you, are you intentionally mysterious? Are you not? What's the right sort of course there? But really over time, as I got more comfortable, that circle continued to widen. And I think it really wasn't until I had kids that I thought to myself, this isn't good enough anymore. And I don't want to be an advocate. I'm not an advocate by nature. I'm an introvert. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the world is hard sometimes for introverts. But I, I just knew it was... I just felt like my kids would be proud. You know, it's like your kids would be proud of you. And I wanted to be that kind of man to them. Um, and I can't ask things of them to be comfortable with them, to stand up for themselves, to stand up for what's right, to be honest with who you are, the good and the bad. I can't expect that of my children if I can't do it myself. Um, and so the, 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 the lens of my perspective changed. And so, um, you know, finally made that decision, um, spoke to John Wardheim with Sports Illustrated, and I just thought, let's, let's do it. Um, and I really haven't looked back. Was the, what was the feedback like when you did come out? Feedback was terrible. <laughs> I, got, I got probably, you know, a couple thousand uh, emails, uh, phone calls, people, um, you know, threatening to come take my kids. They told me my address. They were going to be showing up in the middle of the night. They were going to take, take them away. Are you serious? It's a, it's a sin what you're doing to these children. You're selfish. You're disgusting. So, um, you know, I would say for the hundred positive things I got, um, none of which came from, you know, any tennis player or anybody uh, that was in my life that I sort of hadn't told yet. It was mostly, you know, almost 97, 98% negative. So, uh, it was tough, but I honestly was prepared for it. So it, my husband, Bill struggled. he had never had that kind of attention, certainly not negative attention before. Um, so his safety button got hit and he was highly anxious. Uh, for me, um, I was okay. I was ready. Well, I don't see I don't how know. you can it's get just... ready for that. Uh, I just was. I, I I took it in stride. I understood what it was. I I just don't know how to explain it other than I was ready. And so I, um, you know, I, maybe it's the competitive part in me, <laughs> you know, and I was ready to compete. And, you know, if there's one thing you are as an athlete is you're used to a lot of people judging you, hating on you, telling you you suck, you're stupid, you're everything. Right. I mean, if you're an athlete, you're literally putting yourself on a stage to be made fun of, to be made to look the fool and to lose in front of everybody. So when it's time for me to compete, 
people's opinions and outside commentary like that just don't interest me. Do you think um, it feeds into that adrenaline thing you, you mentioned? Probably. Before? I mean, I kind of love it. I love to compete. And this gave me an opportunity to do it again. You know, the, 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 the people on the other side of the net were clear. Um, I knew that there was going to be talk. I knew there was going to be a lot of things. And, you know, I, you know, it was sort of kind of a bring the noise. Like, I don't, I don't care. I won't falter to you. I, I hear the judgment. I hear all these things. And, you know, again, growing up playing tennis, I wasn't the tallest guy. I wasn't the fastest. I didn't have the best shots. Um, I had a lot of people telling me I was not a great player. And, you know, I thrive on that. Uh, somebody telling me I can't do it or I shouldn't do it or I'm not good enough. That to me is like music to my ears to only compete even harder. That's, that's wild. I wasn't expecting that I answered to be honest with you. Yeah. I, I mean, listen, you never know how you're going to react until you're in the position. So I don't tend to judge a lot of people on how they react in, in certain moments. And I'm surprised I reacted that way, but I did. <laughs> and yeah. frankly, that's probably what happens when you're, you know, at that point I was 34 or some years old. I mean, I just was, I just was ready. I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, so I want to talk about this past week, um, being part of the U.S. Open um, Pride Night. Yeah. So we, how did you, you get know, involved I, in that? So I pushed. Um, you know, I'm, I sit on the board of directors of the USTA, and I've seen some of these Pride events happen at some of these smaller tournaments, and I just thought to myself, I'm sitting here in the boardroom. We're talking about what our values are. We talk about wanting to expand, you know, diversity and inclusion, and and then I'm, th I'm thinking, we don't even do it on literally our most important asset in the grandest stage in tennis. And as people talk about, you know, tennis being the super inclusive sport or, you know, the USDA, the Billie Jean King Tennis Center, and that speaks to our values. Uh, for me, ultimately, I still didn't feel like it's a very inclusive environment. And it's tough for me sometimes. And, and at times it still can be. And so to me, as I think about, you know, I cannot certainly get through it. But as I think about creating more visibility and acceptance so that a somebody who's 10 to 18 years old sees the U.S. Open, the most important, in my opinion, the most important and best event in tennis, being accepting and open and speaking to the LGBTQ community, it just says a lot. And so I reached out to the uh, chairman um, of the board, told him it was something I wanted to do, I wanted to lead. And, you know, within 24 hours, he was like, great, let's do the first one ever, you know, get it done. And I... Uh, you know, worked pretty hard this year to make sure it happened. And, and I think we had a really great discussion from a lot of different generations, all the way from current active players to Billie Jean King. Um, so we had a multi-generation and then multi-sport. So anywhere from Adam Rapone and, and uh, figure skating to Billy Bean and Jason Collins in basketball. And, and it was really awesome to see so many overlapping stories and experiences. And regardless of the sport, regardless of the age, the experience was still the same. Um, and I thought it just sent a really cool message to the people who were there, um, in front of a sold out crowd. Um, it was awesome. And I think it was a huge success and something that I'm excited to build on in future years and sort of wave that flag, so to speak. Um, so hopefully kids across the country can understand that the, the tennis can actually be a very welcoming community to the LGBTQ space. Nice. It's a brilliant way to start this tournament that's coming up. Yeah, um, I'm excited. And we got to, you know, I got to get some feedback from a lot of people who went and see how we can make it better. That's cool. Speaking of the tournament, I have two questions. One about the tournament. And then my final question I'll ask you. Monday night, which this I'll post on Tuesday, so it's after. But Serena Williams versus Sharapova. 
I mean, that's going to be a match. It's a great match. Uh, I am frustrated not to be there in person. I literally show up on Tuesday. Um, I think Serena's going to win. Uh, I continue to see her getting better and better. And, and I don't think since Sharapova has been suspended and out of the sport, I just haven't seen the same level from her since. So I want her uh, to get I know, that record too. I know, I know Maria will be focused for it, but I think the crowd is going to be massively on Serena's side. Everybody's oh, pushing course. for her to get the record. Frankly, I'm excited to get uh, Margaret Court out of any record book exactly. associated with tennis. So I, um, I am very excited about it. Cool. Yeah, I'm excited for the next two weeks. Let me ask you my final question, then I'll let you go. My final question is always this. If you can go back and tell your 12-year-old self, you know, something to help you get through your sexuality and, you know, coming to terms with yourself, what would that one thing be? Oh, my gosh. Um... You know, I think I wish I knew that I wasn't alone. So much of my last, you know, 20, you know, when I was in my late 20s and 30s, and as I've met more athletes and learned so much of my experience was actually not that unique. I wish I could have told myself that those feelings are okay and that they're, I guess I wish there was, I mean, listen, it's what I'm trying to do, right? I'm trying to provide more visibility and recognize people that, mm-hmm. that there are people like me that out there exist that have two kids, soon to have a third. Um, and there's a, I wish there were more of these types of stories that were out there that I could have read or listened to and, and, and helped to understand myself oftentimes through the lens and eyes of other people. I think there's so much opportunity for like personal growth there. So I think I wish I could, every time that I buried some feeling in my, you know, about myself, I wish, um, you know, you had somebody kind of patting you on the back a little bit. Right. And being like, it's okay. Like here, read about this person, read about this, see this thing, you know, but Again, there wasn't that wasn't there at the time. So I don't I don't know what I've told myself. I just wish I wasn't such an anxious little kid. Um yeah. and, and quickly could see the types of people that are out there now that I'm meeting on a daily basis that are very much like me, that are um that that their personality and uh, resonates with and you know, it's just you're not alone. Because there's nothing worse than kind of going through life feeling confused and alone. Yeah. Thank you, Brian, for coming on. I really appreciate you spending time with me today. Yeah, happy to do it. I want to thank Brian again for coming on. He is a busy, busy guy with his professional life, his family, now with the U.S. Open these next two weeks, and his work on the USTA board. Um, So thanks again, Brian, for coming on. If we ended up talking too much tennis, I apologize. Feel free to let me know if that was the case. I have loved tennis since I was a kid, and I really enjoyed my conversation with Brian talking tennis. So sorry if the LGBT issues sort of took a back burner. Um, But let me know if that's an issue. If you want me to make sure I'm talking more LGBT issues, you can reach me on social media at LPFPod on Twitter and Instagram, LevelPlainfieldPod on Facebook, and you can reach me at LevelPlainfieldPod at gmail.com. Next week, I continue my U.S. Open conversation, and I talk to former WTA tennis professional, gold medal winner, just an awesome person. I talked to Gigi Fernandez. Hope you have a great week and look forward to seeing you back next week.